0: Welcome back to another episode of the English Students Digest. We have a lot to get through today. I'm excited for this episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about a Greek myth. Um, We've got some new vocabulary words. In our grammar section, we're going to be talking about prepositional phrases. Um, And in literary structure, we're going to be discussing types of conflict, uh, which has to do with our... Um, short story and text of the day, which is going to be the myth of Echo and Narcissus. I'm excited. You should be excited. Let's get into it, starting with our vocab. Okay, starting with our vocab of the day, we have two words, um, and both of them have to do with our myth. The first one is zealous. Zealous is an adjective, so it's describing someone or something. Um, And the definition here is something that's marked by fervent partisanship for a person, a cause, or an ideal. Uh, and so uh, beneath that another definition is filled with or characterized by zeal so someone who is zealous is um enthusiastic like it said they have fervent partisanship for a person a cause or an ideal um and we'll discuss again later how this relates to our text of the day but keep that in the back of your mind Um, The second uh, word of the day is kind of more directly related to our text. It is narcissist. Narcissist is a noun, so it's um, a thing, it's a concept. Um, And narcissist means an extremely self-centered person who has an exaggerated sense of self-importance. And so an example of using this in a sentence uh, is... Um, humble bragging makes you sound like a narcissist who's also being deceptive and that's a quote from elise craig but um it it just for context um we get to see kind of how you use the word narcissist um so you're uh using it as a noun um but you're talking about a person so when you say someone is a narcissist you mean that they um kind of they have a sense of um, self-importance um which is off often exaggerated. Next, we're going to be getting into our grammar concept, which is prepositional phrases. Uh, now, prepositional phrases, I know it, that's a, it's a concept that I've struggled a bit uh, with in school. So, I thought, you know, relearning it couldn't hurt, and I think I have a better understanding of it now. So the definition of a prepositional phrase is a modifying phrase consisting of a preposition and its object. So I I mean, you just read that definition, it's not super easy to grasp. Um, So when we're talking about a prepositional phrase, um, there's the preposition. Now a preposition, some examples of a preposition are after, about, below off toward above those are all prepositions and what makes um, a prepositional phrase is that kind of other concept of it of having an object so when you're when you have a prepositional phrase um, by itself it would be the preposition an adjective or transition word and then the object so the preposition is talking about the object uh, as well as the adjective but the important parts are the preposition and the object those two together make the prepositional phrase let's look at some examples it's hard to kind of grasp when we're just talking in terms of parts of speech and just saying a bunch of words that might not have so much meaning so let's see how they're used in sentences um, the first sentence we're going to be talking about has multiple uh, prepositional phrases in there. So, the first one is, Above the door, there was a window to the house. So the first prepositional phrase comes at the beginning. Uh, and this phrase is, above the door. Uh, in this phrase, above is the preposition, um, and the door, uh, is the object so that's what makes it a prepositional phrase it's got the preposition above and the door the object the preposition is talking about the object the door above the door that's preposition a prepositional phrase uh, then we have the, kind of like this middle section which is there was a window um, that's a statement that is the part of the sentence that could exist on its own you could just say there was a window um, That's not a a prepositional phrase. It doesn't have um, a preposition. It has an object, an object, a window, uh, but the preposition is not there. So again, our first prepositional phrase in the sentence is above the door. Then we have the middle section, uh, which is a sentence that could exist on its own. There was a window. And the last section is another prepositional phrase, to the house. The preposition in this phrase is to, the object is the house. To, the house, is a prepositional phrase, it has the preposition to, and the house, the object. So, in the sentence, just to recap, above the door, there was a window to the house. The first prepositional phrase is above the door. Then we have there was a window, which is a sentence that could exist on its own, and we have um, to the house, which is the last prepositional phrase um the next sentence we're going to be talking about only has one prepositional phrase um and it's in her drawer i found a book the prep- the prepositional phrase in the sentence comes at the beginning in her drawer uh we're looking at the preposition in uh and drawer is the object so we've got preposition object together they make a prepositional phrase a second part of the sentence is not a prepositional phrase. I found a book. That is um, like a phrase that could exist on its own as a sentence. Uh, You don't need the prepositional phrase in front in her drawer, uh, but it adds to the sentence. So you could just say, I found a book. But when you're saying the sentence in her drawer, I found a book, you are including a prepositional phrase in there. Um, Let's go through two more examples just to help get a better understanding of prepositional phrases. Okay, the next sentence we're going to be talking about is after several minutes we located the key for the door. This sentence has two prepositional phrases. Again, one at the beginning and one at the end. That's not always how the structure is, that's just a coincidence. But uh, the first one is after several minutes. In this case, after is the prepositional phrase, or, I'm sorry, after is the preposition, minutes is the object. Uh, The preposition after is talking about the object minutes. In the middle, we have several, which is still part of the prepositional phrase, but unlike a transition word, it's an adjective uh, describing the minutes. There were several minutes, Uh, but it still is part of the prepositional phrase and adds to that, um, it it encompasses the, preposition and the object combining to get the prepositional phrase. So again, the first prepositional phrase in the sentence is after several minutes. Then we have that middle section, which is we located the key. We located the key is a sentence that could exist on its own. It doesn't need those prepositional phrases at the beginning or at the the end. Um, So our last prepositional phrase is for the door. In this case, FOR is the preposition, and DOOR is the object. Uh, Preposition plus the object equals prepositional phrase. So, again, the sentence, after several minutes, we located the key for the DOOR. After several minutes is a prepositional phrase, we located the key is a sentence that could exist on its own, and FOR the DOOR is another prepositional phrase at the end of that sentence. The last sentence we're going to be talking about is the flock of tiny swallows flew over the trees near the lake this sentence has three prepositional phrases in it and it doesn't really have a sentence that could exist on its own the first prepositional phrase does not come right at the start of the sentence it comes after the first two words so we have the flock and then the prepositional phrase which is of tiny swallows of is the preposition, swallows is the object, tiny is the, is the um, adjective that gets sandwiched in there, um, which is part of the prepositional phrase. So again, the first one we have is of tiny swallows. Then we have another word, which is flew, before we have our next two prepositional fr- phrases. So at this point we have the flock, of tiny swallows which is the prepositional phrase, flew, and then the next prepositional phrase which is over the trees. Over is the preposition, trees is the object, that is a prepositional phrase. The last prepositional phrase comes directly after the second and it is near the lake. Near is the preposition, lake is the object, um, combined we get prepositional phrase. So again we have three prepositional phrases in this sentence. The flock of tiny swallows is a prepositional phrase, flew over the trees is a prepositional phrase, and near the lake is a prepositional phrase. So that's our review of prepositional phrases for the day. Um, After saying prepositional phrase so many times it has now lost meaning um it doesn't this grammar concept doesn't really have to do that much with our story of the day but it's still something good to know and it makes you feel smart once you figure it out so that's that and we'll move on to our types of conflict next next section of the podcast today is our literary structure segment which is types of conflict now before we get into types of conflict let's define conflict in literature a conflict is a literary device characterized by a struggle between two opposing forces conflict provides crucial tension in any story and is used to drive the narrative forward now, I think something important to note in this uh, definition of conflict is it doesn't say between two characters. It says between two opposing forces, and this is really uh, important to uh, remember as we go through types of conflict. Uh, conflict does not always have to be between two characters in the story. It is just two opposing forces. Now let's talk about internal versus external conflict. Again, this is where that kind of two opposing forces concept will come into play. Internal conflict is when a character struggles with their own opposing desires or beliefs. So their opposing desires or beliefs are those two opposing forces. I think it could be more than two, but usually there's main two. Um, internal conflict happens within a character, and it drives their development as a character. So, something that makes characters good and likable and real is that inner conflict, and it's what makes stories interesting. Now, external conflict, uh, is conflict that sets a character against something or someone beyond their control external forces stand in the way of a character's motivations and create tension as the character tries to reach their goals now this is again um doesn't say uh explicitly it's between two characters you can still have external conflict and it doesn't have to be between two entities two uh personalities it can be between just two forces uh one might be a character and one be something else we'll get more into it in a second uh credits of those definitions to master class now let's go through the seven types of conflict we're going to be talking about today yes seven they're all kind of like this versus that um in opposition uh but i think it's fairly interesting we're going to be talking about examples so it's easier to grasp and understand when you have kind of a universal example to think about so our first conflict of the day is an example of internal conflict, and it is character versus self. So, it's an internal struggle with oneself due to morals or harsh situations, something like that, that drives a character against themself. Um Again, this is an internal struggle. It's two opposing forces. It happens within someone. It's not um, external forces outside of a character's control. Some examples, um, often anti-heroes struggle with this, so like Draco Malfoy in um, Harry Potter, like especially in the later books, he's conflicted about his morals and what he has to do and the situation he's put in. Um, Another example I think might be a little more universal is um, Dorian Gray. In the picture of Dorian Gray, um, Dorian is kind of like driven into corruption. We see most of the story from his point of view so we kind of get to see him conflicted with his himself his actions um the situation he's in you know kind of what he he's done and his past and then how that ends for him um and his fate i'm not gonna go into specifics if you don't know what i'm talking about um the second is probably the most common the most significant the most recognizable conflict and that is character versus character external conflict so again this is one of the most common forms of conflict between uh it can be two or more characters uh, but again it's character versus character it's not like these opposing forces this is specifically two characters two persons two um entities opposing each other so um An example of this is like most superhero movies are character versus character. I mean, there's plenty of options out there. Um, You know, in like the Dark Knight, it's the Batman versus the Joker. Those are like the two opposing forces. Um, And you can think bigger scale like that, or you could think, um, you know, kind of smaller scale. Character versus character, which is could be just hand-to-hand combat and fist fights, things like that. That is still um, external conflict and character versus character conflict, um, and conflict within a story on both small and large scales is again what makes it interesting. Um, some examples of this, again, we have superhero movies, um, and fist fights, but also, um, like, feuds between characters, rivalries. So, uh, for example, in the Iliad, it's a war. War is character versus character, external struggle. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, wars, fights, stuff like that, that's character versus character, struggle. Um, and we also want to think of this in terms of humans, um, we're thinking human versus human in this case, um, not really like human versus God or anything. We'll, we'll get more into that in a second. So, again, that's character versus character conflict. Our third form of conflict we're going to be talking about is character versus nature. Now, this is external conflict again, but notice it's not, nature is not really a character, it's just an opposing force. Like we said in that original um, definition. So, an example of this is, like, uh, really any, like, stranded trope story. So, like, stranded on an island, um, Jaws, you know, they're, I mean, they're fighting sharks, um, uh, like, Lost, all of those things are kind of character versus nature. It's where you have to, it's, it's a story of survival, something like that. Um, so again, that's two opposing forces, not necessarily, um, two characters pitted against each other. Then we have character versus supernatural. Again, like I said before, we were thinking, um, character versus character in terms of humans. Now we're talking character versus supernatural. So any conflict with gods, monsters, supernatural beings that you probably don't see in your normal day-to-day life. So I think, um the first thing I thought of when I was looking at these examples was Percy Jackson. Um, again, that's kind of an adaptation of Greek mythology in modern day. Um, and it's these half-human characters, um, that often go against gods, um, monsters, um, just fate, stuff like that. I mean, fate is different, but, um, gods, monsters, supernatural beings, that is a character versus supernatural. Um, a more- uh, universal one that probably more people will know is the Odyssey. Um, in the Odyssey, Odysseus has to face, for example, um, a cyclops, um, which is not a creature, you know, you see when you go out for a hike. So, that that's an example of character versus supernatural. Again, external conflict. Um, yeah. Another good example that uh, kind of more cements the idea of opposing forces rather than characters and entities is, um, magical forces. So anytime it's kind of character versus magical force or a magical being or a sorcerer or something like that, um, that's also an example of character versus supernatural external conflict. Our fifth, uh, example of conflict, um, is character versus technology. So, in this, uh, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, it's character versus technology, Um, so for looking at examples, we can uh, talk about, I mean, this is a superhero movie, but it's what I thought of, Um, in Age of Ultron, um, they're fighting robots, so again, that's character, human characters versus technology, um, which are not human characters, Um, then another example is 2001 A Space Odyssey, That's that's a story about um, these astronauts that are opposing um, a uh, artificial intelligence, AI, who has kind of corrupted, been corrupted, and trying to kill them, essentially. But again, that's characters versus technology, artificial intelligence. That's character versus technology, again, external conflict. Only two more conflicts to go through we're getting there, people. All right. Number six is character versus sex society, which is external. Character versus society, external conflict. Um, so often this occurs, um, when characters have motivations to take action for their morals, for their freedom, for their justice, etc. Or their like, going against societal norms, something like that. Um, this comes up a lot in, like, dystopian literature, so Hunger Games, um, The Giver, uh, stuff like that where, um, there's a dystopia and often our main characters are kind of going against that. Um, another example is Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, like, realize this, but, um, Romeo and Juliet is character versus society conflict. Romeo and Juliet are not really supposed to be together. Um, and so they go against, um, society and rules in order to, like, follow their feelings. Um, I think we should talk more about Romeo and Juliet in a later episode because it's fairly interesting. Um, alright, let's keep going though our last uh conflict of the day is character versus fate um and i mentioned fate earlier but i didn't want to get into it because of this specificity um so character versus fate is pretty much anything with a prophecy um often this occurs in uh any kind of uh story that follows the hero's journey trope um which another example is percy jackson or harry potter um where we have our main character, there's a prophecy about them. They go through their lives, grow up, journey, um, and either fulfill that prophecy or not. I mean, it, it. but it's character versus fate. Often characters know that there's prophecy um, about them and try to escape it or work up or work to um, escape it or work against it. I think that... I said the same thing there twice. It's okay. Uh, But anything with the prophecy is character versus fate, which is external conflict. There might be some internal conflicts within that, but uh, fate is an opposing force to um, a character. Now, something I thought was funny was, uh, again, when you're looking at a piece of literature, um, often the best, most complex pieces of literature have all or many of these um of of these conflicts um and so i thought what i thought was interesting about this was lord of the rings has a lot of these conflicts um so first is character versus self i mean obviously there's many examples character versus self is often like viewed as the least significant but the most um kind of recurring uh conflict um so we have in the original Lord of the Rings there's a lot of character versus self conflict with Frodo um, and Sam and their journey kind of as they're corrupted by the ring and it drives um, a wall between them but I was thinking more Frodo because he's like after Sam leaves he's a little um, regretful and and shameful of what he's done and stuff Um, we also have uh, examples of this in The Hobbit uh, when Bilbo has the Arkenstone, he, he doesn't want it cr- to corrupt Thorin, um, so he's not sure whether or not to give it to him. Um, yeah. Character versus character, again, this is kind of like the most common one. The thought, the huh, the best example, kind of most prominent example I thought of was, again, in The Hobbit, um, but with Thorin and and Azog, they have this rivalry that goes on for years, and then eventually they, like, fight, uh, one-on-one, so that's a pretty um, uh, significant and easy to r- recognize example of character versus character um, feuding and conflict uh, then we have character versus nature so the kind of entire premise of lord of the rings stories is journeys and traveling and throughout those travels they're basically fighting against nature the entire time so in the goblin caves in the mountains uh, facing spiders That's all character versus nature. Uh, Then we have character versus supernatural. Um, So the main one I thought of was everyone versus Smaug. Smaug's a dragon. You don't see dragons, again, when you're going for a hike. Uh, So that's character versus supernatural. Um, Conflict. I mean, there are many examples of supernatural beings. There are elves, there are hobbits, there are um, goblins, there are orcs but that was just the main one i thought of because smaug is such a um like an individual um character and an individual force um onto himself then we have character versus technology now for this i was thinking the rings would represent technology um especially on frodo's journey because again he's corrupted by the ring um and his like mind is kind of addled by it um but i thought like that would be technology, right? I think that's technology in a world where technology isn 't really technology. I thought rings were technology they're a little supernatural, but essentially that's that was that was my um, justification then character versus society um, I thought was good in just any hobbit adventures um hobbits don't really normally go on adventures they're expected to kind of stay in their hobbit holes and you know be normal and read books and sit by the fire But so when they go on adventure whether that's frodo bilbo sam um they're all defying societal norms and having this conflict of of character versus society um yeah that's that. I think there's there are probably prophecies in there, but I couldn't think of any specific ones to exemplify character versus fate. But um those are examples of types of conflict. I hope you learned something from that. And once you kind of have a good grasp on these types of conflict, it's fun to recognize them in media, whether that's TV shows, short stories, novels, anything like that. Um, yeah, so our next segment is going to be talking about our text of the day which is the myth of echo and narcissus uh it's one of my favorite myths it's very sad but it's a very good it's very good so we're gonna see many more types of conflict not many more examples of the types of conflict within that now let's get into our text segment of the day uh it has a greek myth and if you know anything about greek mythology you know that these people's names are hard to pronounce they're greek they got funky spellings funky pronunciations so take anything i pronounce with a grain of salt it i'm not greek i don't speak greek it could definitely be incorrect um i'm gonna do my best Let's get into it we're going to talk about echo's backstory narcissus's backstory and their interactions together uh these are our two main characters and then we'll talk about the tragedy and the types of conflict within the uh, this myth all right echo was an aurea nymph from the from mount Citheron in boeotia the parents of the mountain nymph are never made clear but she was educated in music by the younger muses Beautiful in her own right, Echo was chased by both Apollo and Pan, but would shun their advances. And although Zeus did not chase after Echo, he made use of the mountain nymph. For whilst Zeus would have his way with other nymphs, Echo would talk for hours with Hera, distracting the goddess from Zeus's indiscretions. Hera would eventually recognize the role Echo was playing in enabling her husband's affairs, and so Hera cursed Echo so that she no longer had a voice of her own, and the nymph was only able to repeat the words of others." That is Echo's backstory. Uh, let's talk about the characters in here just so everyone kind of understands what's going on. Uh, so again, we get where she's from, we don't know her parents, um, but she is chased by both Apollo and Pan. Apollo is the sun god, he's one of the Olympians, and Pan, I believe, is the god of nature. Um, and and then we have Zeus and Hera, who are the king and queen of the Olympians. Uh, Zeus is the god of lightning and the sky, and Hera is like marriage and cows. Yeah, they're, they're like the, the head, male and female gods. Uh, there are 12 gods, 12 Olympians, um, 12 main gods. Um, Pan is not an Olympian, uh, but Apollo is. So Apollo is also Zeus's son. Apollo has a twin sister. We're not gonna get into that. We just know we have Echo who was cursed by Hera so she can only repeat the words of others. That is her backstory. Now let's talk about Narcissus. Narcissus was a handsome youth from the city of Thespiae in Boeotia and was generally considered to be the son of Potomoi Cephasis and the Oceanid Liriope, although occasionally Narcissus was named as the son of Endymion and Selene. That was a lot of names. Could have messed them up. I don't know if I did. When still a child, the blind seer... seer Oh my gosh, gosh. The blind seer Tiresias made a a prophecy that Narcissus would lead a long life only as long as he did not know himself, Although, although the meaning is not altogether clear. It might be translated to mean that Narcissus was not to look upon himself, which fits into the downfall of Narcissus, but equally might be taken to mean that Narcissus had to remain humble. Narcissus would grow up to be amongst the most beautiful of all mortals with a beauty on par with that of endymion adonis or hyacinthus hyacinthus yep just these are people that are beautiful that's all you need to know Narcissus would become a deer hunter, but his beauty brought forth many admirers, both male and female, and mortal and immortal. That is Narcissus's backstory. Now, if we go through this, we just the most important part of this is that um, he there's a prophecy about him made by Tiresias uh, that he would lead a long life only as he did not know himself. Again, we don't really know the true meaning of that, uh, but that's just the important thing. We get what he's who his parents are. Um, not super important in the myth of Echo and Narcissus. Alright, now we're going to talk about their their little interaction. So, again, Narcissus uh, is bringing, bu- bringing forth, um, his beauty is bringing forth uh, many admirers. One of the admirers of Narcissus was Echo. For after being cursed by Hera, the Oriad had wandered through Boeotia and had glanced at the youthful narcissist while he hunted, falling immediately in love with him. With no voice of her own, Echo could not call out to Narcissus, but eventually the thespian sensed that he was being watched and called out. Echo could not respond to the question, who's there, and could only repeat the words of Narcissus eventually though echo left her hiding place and came face to face with narcissus narcissus was incapable of loving anyone but himself and echo was cruelly rejected echo fled back into the mountain woodlands and faded away leaving only the remnants of her voice behind so that is our lovely little interaction between echo and narcissus um so again when echo has been cursed she cannot uh say anything of her own volition and narcissus cannot love anyone else um so it's kind of kind of tragic now we're going to talk about narcissus's death we know that echo has just faded away um and the remnants of her voice like echo through the field still but she no longer exists In either case, Nemesis, the great goddess of retribution, heard the words and observed the callous rejection of others by Narcissus and intervened. Intervened, When Narcissus came to a pool in Thespiae to drink from its water, the youth saw his own reflection in the pool and fell in love with it. Narcissus was unable to obtain the object that he had fallen in love with just as so many suitors of narcissus had been rejected narcissus would die of sorrow by the pool despite the pleadings of the naiads and dryads who had observed narcissus wasting away a funeral py- a funeral pyre was built for narcissus by the nymphs but when they came to place the body of the handsome youth upon it they could not find it as all that was left was a flower the narcissus flower So that's one version of Narcissus' death, which is that he just died of sorrow because he fell in love with himself and and he couldn't date himself. So that's one version. An alternate version of the death of Narcissus sees the thespian youth recognizing the unrequited love that he has for his own reflection. And now brutally aware of the pain and suffering that he has caused so many, Narcissus falls upon his own sword just as a... a man, a man yeah, Ameinias had done. <laughs> Rough pronunciations, it's okay. But throughout the story, we have many different types of conflict. Uh, we've uh, throughout Echo's origin, Narcissus's origin, um, their interaction, and Narcissus's death. So, first we have character versus fate. If we think back to Narcissus' backstory, uh, there was a prophecy that was made about him that was as long as he didn't know himself, he would live a long life. Um, we see that the, uh, prophecy was kind of proven true because he fell in love with his own reflection, um, therefore knowing himself, um, and either killed himself or just died of sorrow, um, and did not lead a long life. Uh, so that's our first conflict, which is character versus fate. Then we have character versus character, um, the easiest, uh, recognition of this is narcissist rejecting Echo. Um, yeah, they're one interaction, they just butted heads, two opposing forces, that's our character versus character. Um, it's not really any other forces. Uh, character versus self, uh, is narcissist committing suicide. He couldn't love himself, he didn't know what to do and so instead of living or you know living in the i don't know pain of uh unrequited love with oneself he 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 died in that in that version that he he would have been so at odds with himself that he just he just um he he took his own life um so again that's our third conflict which is character versus self and then we have character versus nature uh which is Narcissus. i think dying of starvation or sorrow um he just he couldn't tear his eyes away from himself and died because of nature but also because of that kind of self-conflict um or i don't know if, like that's kind of confusing is it self-conflict or is it like self-love it's it's complicated falling in love with yourself you know then, our fifth, um, example of conflict is character versus nature, or er, um, excuse me, character versus supernatural. Um, again, this is Greek mythology. We got gods and naiads and dryads and all different beings that you don't see on your daily hike. Um, so for character versus supernatural, I said Echo being cursed by Hera. Hera is a goddess. Echo is not. Uh, she's a nymph. I mean being a nymph is still supernatural, but, um, she's cursed by Hera. They're at odds because Echo was, um, uh, making sure that Zeus was not caught in an affair, uh, by Hera's wife. Um, so again, those are our five different types of conflict. Uh, as you can see, you might not, like, when you're reading a story like this, you might read it and just go, oh, that's a sad story and kind of not see the depth of these conflicts. Um, And so once you can recognize different types of conflicts, internal and external conflicts and their significance, um, it makes stories so much more complex and so much more um, interesting. Again, in the story, it's not really character versus society or character versus technology, but that doesn't mean that multiple conflicts do not arise. wrap up the day and kind of link all of our uh, concepts together, we're going to be talking about the significance of conflict both within uh, the myth of Echo and Narcissus and just literature in general, whether you're reading it, writing it, or consuming media. Now, in our story of Echo and Narcissus, um, the different types of conflict that come into play all kind of play a role later in the story. And... Eventually contribute to the fate of our characters um, So at the very beginning in our origin stories we have the curse of echo She's cursed to only be able to repeat things that other people say and we have the prophecy um, About Narcissus, so there's this uh, character versus supernatural Conflict with echo and character versus fate conflict with narcissus now these are Maybe the most significant conflicts within the story because they are integral. Integral? Is that how you say that? I think it's integral. They are integral in how uh, the characters kind of die, I guess you could say. um So, because Echo um cannot speak to Narcissus, and because Narcissus cannot love anyone but himself, um, You know, she's cruelly rejected. uh, Which is conflict that comes out of those earlier conflicts. Um, And this rejection causes Echo to kind of fade away into non-existence. And then causes uh, the goddess Nemesis to um, force- Well, not force, but causes the goddess Goddess Nemesis to um, have- narcissists fall in love with himself and eventually die because he falls in love with himself and so these layers of conflict are easily to kind of um not really grasp or just kind of ignore as you're reading this story it's easy to just say oh it's a story about you know making sure you don't like fall in love with yourself or you know love yourself too much or be too full of yourself um it's so much more than that, especially when you're looking at the complexity of these conflicts. And I think it's important to note that even in such a short amount of time, um, in this passage, in this myth, um, we take a simplistic plot, what could have been a simplistic plot, and it's deepened so much because, um, these other conflicts are included. And so I think that's Like I said, it's significant when you're both reading and writing because it both gives you a more enriching experience as a reader or just consuming media in general, um, or when you're constructing a story, um it's what makes a story good, is those layers of complexity within conflict. You can't have an interesting story if you don't have conflict, and even if you have one type of conflict, it's not going to be interesting until you include those other types and deepen them and make them connect and uh, kind of interlink with each other. Um, So that's why conflict is so, so important in media and literature, etc. I find that Often, my favorite characters are the most conflicted ones um, because conflict really develops and deepens character. If, if a character is not conflicted, then they're not interesting. So, um, these conflicts are what make characters interesting, what make them lovable, especially when you agree with their um, conflicts and why they're conflicted. Um, so, that's that's what I find very interesting about conflict. It really shapes the stories that we love so much um that's our episode for today hope you enjoyed it um maybe it'll it'll get you back into your percy jackson phase um of greek mythology um but i love greek mythology i love the depth of it um and we will see you next time um again just to recap today we went through prepositional phrases we went through our vocabulary words which are Um, narcissist and zealous which are both present in our lovely myth uh narcissist again pretty self-explanatory Narcissus was a narcissist um yeah and then zealous what i thought was interesting about that was that um it's it, it was defined as someone who someone who is zealous is someone who is like enthusiastic or um very motivated by um, or about something, so I characterized, um, Narcissus as zealous because he is so in love with himself, and it eventually drives him to death. Um, so those were our vocabulary words of the day, and our most important concept was probably conflict, both in this story and just how it plays into literature, media, etc. Hope you enjoyed, and tune in next time.